Our text out of Ezekiel chapter 8, have to do with greater abominations than these. All right, starting verse 1, it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. And that is, the timing is, is correlating to the uh, last, or the second to last king, Jerichom, uh, Jehoiakim, who was taken captive by, um, by Babylon and taken to Assyria. And so uh, Ezekiel's counting time in relation to that. And so there's timing here in relation to, to, to that. Uh, sixth year, sixth month, fifth day of the month would be just shortly after he finishes his laying on his side, his left side, for 300 and, I forget how many days, 90 days, and, and then uh, 40 days on his right side. And so this would conclude just a little bit after that conclusion is where we come to. And it says, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, at the hand, and that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So there he is in his own house, and the elders are there, so they're recognizing the prophetic gift that, he has, uh, that God has given to him. So they're not writing him off, oh, this is this lunatic who laid on his side for over a year uh, and, and, and ate uh, Ezekiel uh, 719 bread, or whatever it's called, uh, 669 bread, 96, whatever it was. Oh, four, four, eight bread, right? Four, eight, four, I don't know. Whatever, is Ezekiel bread. What? Four, eighteen. Ezekiel four, eighteen. Yeah, four, eighteen bread, and uh, with cooked on, uh, on top of uh, dung poop, and, and, you know, and so just write him off and cuts off his hair and all the other kinds of things that God had Ezekiel doing. But they're there with him. The elders of Judah are there with him, recognizing the gift that God has given him. Four, nine. Four, nine. All right, Ezekiel 4 and 9, bread, for those who want to be specific. All right. So he's sitting there in his house with them, eating bread together, and, uh, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him right there in the midst of whatever they were doing there, discussing or having a prayer time or whatever they were discussing, doing. Uh, God's Spirit comes upon him and takes him off into vision right before their eyes. I looked and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. And so we compare this with other appearances like this in the scriptures, and this seems to be Yeshua coming to him, Yeshua, in his brightness, in his glory, uh, in his manifestation, coming and appearing to Ezekiel. Again, right there, we don't know if anyone else in the room is seeing it, but Ezekiel is seeing it, God's appearing to him. And he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of the hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And so again, so this appearance of Yeshua comes, grabs him by, by his hair, but it's not Yeshua who lifts him up, it's the spirit that lifts him up. So he's not being dragged by his hair. But so we see this kind of switch taking place there. Yeshua grabs him, but the spirit lifts him up in vision. So he's not necessarily literally, the people there in his house didn't necessarily literally see him go up. He probably was just, you know, probably just in a vision state. Um, and he gets in vision taken up and taken to Jerusalem. Again, not literally taken to Jerusalem, in vision, by the Spirit, taken to Jerusalem, and into the north gate, where there's an image of jealousy which provokes 
to jealousy. And so what is this provoking to jealousy? Who's being provoked to jealousy? It's not necessarily uh, an idol that, uh, that people have an idol to jealousy. They're, they're honoring jealousy, right? That's not such a great thing. People don't like jealous people or, you know. But here it's in relation to, it's provoking God to jealousy. God says he is a jealous God because God loves us. God's attached to us. And he doesn't want to share us with anyone else. That's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am the Lord God. I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the one who delivered you. I am the Lord God. Don't have any other gods before me. I am, and then the fourth commandment, I am the one who's created all things. So I created you, and I redeemed you. I brought you out of Egypt, and I created you, and so I have you twice, you're twice mine, from creation and from redemption. I have birthed you and rebirthed you. You are my people. And so God is jealous. He's even crushed, as we read about last week. His heart is crushed as he used the term adultery, when we commit adultery against him, when we commit adultery with other gods, with other things, and putting them before God. And so if any of us have been hurt in that way, we can relate a little bit and enter into God's suffering and how we hurt him. And so this is this image there that's provoking God to jealousy. Behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, and he said, Son of man, lift up your eyes. And he lifted up my eyes, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. So God's glory is there. God's glory is still there in the temple at this point. We're going to see it doesn't stay there forever. But at this point, God's glory is still there. God's Shekinah glory is still there. God's presence is still there. But then also, this image has been brought in, that's provoking God to jealousy. God's not happy about these idols being brought in there. And I lifted my eyes, and there was this image of jealousy in the entrance. And we've seen this down through the ages of humans putting something else before God, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Eve putting her own desires, a desire to be like God, making herself a God and an image and her own desires and her own mind and eating of the fruit and Adam putting Eve before God and, and following her and Eve following Satan, Lucifer, the serpent, and obeying him instead of obeying God. And then many other occasions, but as pictured here, the, the, the golden calf and worshiping the idol while Moses is up on the mountain talking with God for 40 days eating manna every day, right from God's hand. And this idol <laughs> placed there. Idols of jealousy that provoke God to jealousy. We have in Babylonian captivity, Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. Actually, Daniel wasn't present at that time, but the other three were there. And the idol worship taking place and people bowing down to idols. And down through the ages, people today still bowing down to idols. An idol of jealousy provokes God to jealousy, God's children. Bowing to man-made things, things made of gold, things made of silver, things made of wood. Handmade, human-made, 
not eternal, not divine, not everlasting, but bowing down to things that our own hands have made. How sad it is around the world in different cultures, in different ways, as if this thing that we ourselves made could help us. I mean, if we had to make it, then how great can it be? How strong can it be? And if it comes and goes and they change and they change faces and they change style and they change looks, how can we bow to these things made by man, created by man in all different cultures of the world, in every type of society, modern day, intellectual thinking, and we should be able to see past this type of stuff and realize how foolish it is to bow and pray to something that our own hands have made. Something that can't talk, something that can't hear, something that can't see. And yet we bow and pray before these things. In this day and age, from the beginning of time till now, and it saddens God's heart and provokes God to jealousy. How sad. And not just things of plastic and things of wood and things of steel, but things of flesh as well. People who worship, whether sports idols or music idols. Sad. Humans that are here today and gone tomorrow. Most of the metal ones and stone ones outlive the the human ones, and even the memories of them. Verse 6. And he said, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you will see greater abominations. If, if that wasn't all bad enough. Greater abominations than these causing me to leave my sanctuary. We chase God away. You say, we don't need you. We don't want you. We have our own man-made ways. Plans of our own devisings. Things that we can control and manipulate and create in our own image. Greater abominations. He brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. Now again, he's obviously not crawling through and, and going through. It's kind of like you know, a vision, it's a dream. And so he's breaking through this wall, and he goes through this door, and we're going to see the people inside that room. Well, how did they get in that room? If there was a hole there that he had to bust open bigger for him to crawl through. So whether the things that he actually sees is actually there on the walls in the temple or not, but it was taking place at least in the hearts and the minds of the people. And God is showing us what's going on behind the scenes in people's lives. And I went in and I saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed on all round on the walls. And they might have, they might have painted on the sanctuary walls in the temple. They might have. But this imagery here that's being 
talked about, very similar to what was taking place in Egypt at that time. Israel at that time was asking Egypt to help them in their war against Babylon. And so they might have been grabbing a hold of some of the idols of Egypt and praying to them for help instead of to the Lord God. And there I stood before them, stood before them, 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Sephan. Each man had a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. So these are, whether they are of the Levitical line or not, they're using censers as if they are part of the Levitical. It says the elders of the house of Israel, then the sort of say, uh, Kohenim or Levites. So either they are and they're using the censers and they're in the temple or they are masquerading as and claiming that. And it mentions this name of this person who's among the 70 that's worshiping these things, but it mentions his father or grandfather. Son is usually used, you know, either way. Um, but this man, Sephan, is mentioned as helping Josiah in the reforms that Josiah did. So Sephim was good and blessed God and served God and, and loved God, and here his son or his grandson is doing just the opposite. How sad, again, the falling away and the abominations taking place right before God's eyes, and God sees through holes and walls, and even solid walls, God sees what's going on in our lives. He knows the intent of our heart. He knows our motives and our thoughts. And he said, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And in the midst of calamities, they're blaming the calamities on God when really the calamities are there because of our own choices because of our sins that have put us outside of God's protection, because of our sins that God is allowing things to happen to try and awaken us, to cause us to turn back to God. And calamity God out of love. So we read in the Bible study this week, those whom God loves, he chastises. We had a great discussion in the midweek Bible studies. If you haven't been there, come and join it. It's a lot of fun. A lot of great discussion goes on. We don't just listen to the sermon. It's so boring. We all get to talk. We all get to participate. Great time. But this week, God lo those whom God loves, he chastises and disciplines. And instead of taking the chastisement and saying, a friend has loved me, my God has loved me, and he cares about me, and he loves me, and he wants to wake me up to my spiritual condition. We're resisting here. And saying, God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God is forsaken, so let's go look to other gods. Let's try something else. The Red Sea hasn't parted yet, let's look for some other solution. God calls us to wait over and over again to wait upon the Lord. God often stretches it out to test our faith, to strengthen our faith, to build our faith, to help us in our walk with Him. See what we're really made of. 
It's easy to smile when it's sunny out. But can we have the inner joy and peace no matter what's going on around us? Faith in God's love, regardless of the circumstances. The only way we can really know ourselves is if God allows certain things to happen to test, to see whether we really trust him or not, good times or bad, for better or for worse. But sometimes it's because of our own choices. I remember one time talking with a person, he had just been hit by a car, walking across the street. His brother, years earlier, was in an accident, paralyzed, in a coma, vegetative state, never recovered, many, many years, just hooked up and eventually died. And now his mother is watching her second son get hit and severe neck injury, not sure what's going to take place. Rustin flew him to a hospital, had to have surgery, thankfully came through it. Praise the Lord, was not paralyzed from the neck down. Or it could have gone either way. And he confessed that this brought me back to the Lord. I turned from him, and even just hours before the accident, I was complaining to God that he wasn't there for me. And I was disappointed with him, and I was yelling at him, and arguing with him. You have forsaken me. But God in his mercy didn't take him out under those circumstances, but used the circumstances to waken him up, to get his attention. And it led him in repentance and humility before God. It can go either way. The choice is ours. Here in this situation, Ezekiel's time, he sees it's, they're, they're, they're saying God has forsaken us, so let's go to these other idols, these other gods, these other solutions, or some so-called solutions. Verse 13, he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, the, 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 the false god Tammuz goes way back, Sumeria, Sumerians or whatever, way back, uh, and taken on by the Assyrians and, and taken on by many different groups. Uh, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks all had a version of this Tammuz and, and his story. And uh, he, according to the, the story, uh, he gets killed by a pig. Uh, and so there's this twice a year, a, a celebration at one point, um, and then another point of weeping and mourning uh, in July, August time. And, and so here the women are sitting there weeping for Tammuz in the temple, in Jerusalem, this false god they've taken on and are following and weeping for. And as a counterfeit, it's a counterfeit for the true God. They sold their souls. And they said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. Each one worse than the one before. How much worse can it get? 
And with the Tammuz worship during that celebration time of licentious acts taking place. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and there at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar, there are about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were worshiping the sun toward the east. Worshiping idols. Worshiping images on the walls. Worshiping Tammuz, weeping for him. And then turning their backs on the temple and worshiping the sun. Something God created. Something God made. And in some cultures, I mean, that might be some understandable if they don't have a knowledge of God and here's this big, huge thing that comes up every single morning and crosses over the expanse of the sky and gives them warmth and, you know, and has a lot to do in interaction with us. And when it's out and sunny, we feel better. And when it's hidden behind clouds and gloomy and dark, we feel, you know, negative. Um, and, when, and when it's dark at night, fearful and can't see and, and so the sun could be you know, can understand under certain circumstances but here in Jerusalem at that day and age with the amount of knowledge that God had shared with us having the word of God knowing the creator God who created all things and put the sun in its place and ordered the seasons and everything be turning our backs on God, who loves us with an everlasting love, to worship a bowl of fire that you can't hug, that you can't, that can't hug you, that can't, doesn't care for you, doesn't know your feelings, doesn't know your thoughts, can't reach down into our lives, can't hear us, doesn't know our name, doesn't know our hairs doesn't care about us. Just is stuck in an orbit. Or we're in an orbit around it, right? And it has its own orbit too, but all into the hand of God. To worship the creator, created instead of the creator. To worship the creature instead of the one who created the creatures. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And down through the ages, cultures, Babylonian cultures pictured here, worshiping the sun, still finding in archaeological digs various different symbols and signs of sun worship in Egypt, sun worship, worshiping the sun toward the east. Various cultures in various ways, and pictures, and diaphragms, and, and statues. And the sun, the disc behind the idols. It's the sun behind them, the sun empowering them. It's amazing how many different mother and child images also go along with this sun of worshiping the, the sun in the sky.
backs towards the temple, worshiping the sun. This is in Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, rather. This is at, in a church, it's over a cave, where they say the Messiah was born. Looks more like a fireplace to me. And inside that little fireplace area, below is a close-up of a star, of a sun star. As if he was born on a piece of marble <laughs> with a metal star, sun star on it. But people go there and bow there and kiss it and all kinds of things. In Jerusalem, in the church where they say Yeshua died and was killed, they say this is the point where he was killed. This is, God, uh, this is Calvary. This is where he died. This is where the cross was. And right in front of at the base, they've got a huge picture, a huge relief on the, on the tile of a son, another son. So a son where he was born, son where he would died. And in that same area, supposedly the place where they buried him. Does that look like where they, did you ever get that picture? That's where they buried him. They buried him in a little building in a bigger building. <laughs> or does, you know, does this, is this what you ever thought of Calvary looking like? That's where he died. <laughs> That's the picture you get in your mind as you read the, the scriptures and the stories. But back to this. So there's a little building that they think is, the, they say is the cave where he was, where he was buried. But look at the, above it, on the top of the building that's above the building. The sun is there as well. Right in Jerusalem. Sun following in all these different places. How interesting. And then in Rome, the top of the Vatican also. Circle and the star burst. Worshiping the sun. The Eucharist placed in a son. Another Pope, Benedict, another one. Those are pictures of four different popes with three different popes with four different of these sons. Each one of them was a son, right? Very clearly. Very clearly. Sun images, sun rays coming out from it. And so they, they say they've placed the S-O-N, the sun, inside the sun, in an essence. Very clearly, inside the, the sun thing. Pray towards it, worship it, claim it's the living God. In modern day, unbelievable. And then even this IHS, I forget exactly what it is, but it's an abbreviation of Yeshua's name somehow, in Greek somehow, centered around again another sunbursts. Sun all over the place. Bethlehem at his birth, Jerusalem, where they say he died, and the place where they place, they say is his body today, in all sorts of forms. And in every service taking place on the day named after the sun, the Sunday, added on and changed from the original biblical Sabbath 
in order to accommodate the pagans who were worshiping the sun on Sunday. And to mesh the two together, paganism and Christianity. Over 17 or so 100 years, a tradition has continued on, even in today, turning our backs on God and his law and doing things our way and worshiping the sun, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence, then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they will cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. We put such a wall between us and God. We can get to the point where he can't hear us. And that's what was happening then. And not long after this time in Ezekiel's day, Babylon comes through and destroys the temple and destroys the city because of our abominations, because of our sins, because of rejecting God's love and rejecting God's mercy and rejecting God's rebuke and rejecting God's warnings and turning to all other gods in all other ways, looking for deliverance. And that deliverance never came. But what about us? God dug a hole into the wall in our house. What abominations are taking place there? As God looks into our minds and our hearts, what idols do we have? What have we placed before God in our own ways? In whom do we trust rather than trusting in the Lord God Almighty? In whom do we look for in our time of need? in our time of help, to look for for help. There was really no until the testing time comes. I remember one time when I, years ago, when I first came to the Lord, I was pondering this and thinking, would I cry out to God? Would I seek God? Would that be the first thing that I was concerned about and looking towards? And that very night I was driving home and it was in New York and in New York they got this strange thing called snow and ice and cold weather. And it was icy road and it was nighttime, it was dark, it was after midnight and I hit an ice patch and the car was sliding off the road and off down this steep cliff and went up over the edge and up by the snow bank was so high just, the car just went right up over the... Uh, the guardrail, couldn't even see the guardrail, it was right up over it. And I cried out, Lord, help me. And two tires went over the guardrail, but two tires stayed on the other side of the guardrail. <laughs> Praise the Lord is right. Yeah. To whom do we look? Who is our God? To whom do we trust? 
in our own workings, in our own actions, in our own deeds, in our own abilities, trusting in someone else, where do we put first? To whom do we bow down to? To whom do we obey? Our boss, employee, the government, ourselves, or do we trust the Lord God Almighty? See, first and foremost. And we can see it in ourselves, we can see it in, like the saying, put your money where your mouth is, right? We can see it in our, our time, in our attitudes toward things. Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our thoughts? Whom has our greatest desire? Whom do we talk about? Do we talk more about politics or sports or things or our grandkids or, <laughs> or ourselves? To whom do we talk? To whom do we think about? Whom do we meditate upon? Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our energies? Where are our thoughts? That's what it's going to come down to. The judgment's not going to be a trivia quiz. Bible trivia. It's going to be God looking into the temple of our hearts and seeing what we've placed there and who reigns there and who rules there. It's easy to look back and say, oh, they have the pictures on the wall and oh, this culture does this and oh, that culture does that. It's easy to see the outward and see how it directly contradicts the Word of God. It's another thing to allow God's Spirit to inwardly search our hearts and check our motives and our desires and our longings and our intent and our purposes. So in a moment when we pray, we can ask God and give God permission to search us. And if he convicts us of anything, praise the Lord, we have the Messiah the real living God, the Son of God, who was lifted up on high, not above a sun, some beam on the ground, but lifted up on a, on a tree and killed for us, and died for us, paid the ultimate price for us, and then lifted up to heaven, lifted up on high, and seated at the right hand of the Father for us, interceding for us. We can surrender our sins and we can surrender our idols and we can surrender it all to him and receive forgiveness, receive mercy, receive grace and receive help in our present times of need. An ever-present help to us. He loves us with an everlasting love who's given himself for us. And so let us pray and let God do his search in our hearts, in our minds, and lead us in his way everlasting. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you for your great love for us. We're thankful for your word that can direct our paths, that we're not left just blindly looking for something to help us. Obviously, for every culture, you've put a need 
for something greater than ourselves. And thank you that you meet that need. That we don't need to make things to meet that need. We don't need to look to the heavens or to the earth to find things to meet that need. You are alive, you are real, and you meet our every need. And so we want to surrender all to you and we want you to be our God at all times. And we want to be your children at all times. And so we surrender our hearts and minds to you. Claim your presence and power in us for your honor and glory in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.